You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh God, we ask that you would be pleased to magnify Jesus before our eyes today. And as you do so, Jesus, may you increase and we decrease. Amen. So our passage today is Canticle. It's probably the most famous of all the canticles, Mary's Song, or the Magnificat, as it's called, because of its opening line in Latin. What is a canticle? It's such a strange and churchy word. No, it's not a sea creature that grows on the side of a ship or an obscure part of the human anatomy. A canticle is a fancy word for any song in the Bible that's not a psalm. Any song in the Bible that's not a psalm. So psalms are called psalms. And any other song in the Bible that's not there in that book is called a canticle. And Mary's song is probably one of the ones with the most musical settings in the world, and for good reason. It's an explosion of joy, an explosion of joy based on the best of news. The angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to have a very special baby, right? The story that many of us all know. Then Mary goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, who's also pregnant. And by the way, there's nothing more joyful and comforting than two ladies journeying through pregnancy together. You can imagine them bubbling and bouncing and squeaking like some women might do on your favorite rom-com when, you know, that he loves me moment happens. It's one of those kinds of things. And then out of the crescendo of that excitement, out of that encounter with Gabriel and Elizabeth, Mary does what the people of God have been doing for centuries, no millennia. In response to the good news, Mary sings a song. Now I want to pause here and I want to observe this. There's a strong scriptural pattern right from the very beginning of the people of God being a singing people. Have you ever read the Old Testament and observed those high watermark moments when the people of God sing? What do the people of God do, for instance, at that pinnacle moment? When they cross the Red Sea, redeemed from the slavery of Egypt, Exodus 15, the first biblical song. They sing a song. The Psalms, God's holy hymn book, is put in the Bible. They teach us that because God saves us, we don't just say thank you, we sing thank you. Our identity as Christians is that we are a singing people. Singing is fundamental to how the Christian faith gets expressed. I mean, how many of you have ever heard of a a Buddhist worship night or a Muslim even song or a Hindu Diwali cantata, right? You haven't heard of these things because Christians uniquely, Christians uniquely are a people of song. Now, this is going to be one of those mildly uncomfortable moments where I take a few pastoral jabs of his admonishment. Forgive me in advance. You know that I love you. Advent, we've got room to grow here. We've got room to live into our identity as singing people. And I want to briefly make a case for it. I want to give us a few reasons among many why we should sing, and then maybe look at a few reasons why we don't. First, we sing simply because God commands it. Sing to the Lord a new song. The Psalms cry, and Paul admonishes us to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These aren't suggestions. They're imperatives. And well, if God commands something, we should do it. Second, 
We sing so that we can feel the truth more deeply. Have you ever noticed the difference between reading or reciting lyrics of a hymn or a song versus singing them? Have you ever tried the comparison out? And if you ever do, you'll have noticed that singing adds a whole layer of depth to the truth of the words. And if you haven't tried it, oh man, you are missing out because it's not just about the knowledge of truth. Singing helps us experience the joy of truth. Don't miss out. Third, we sing because, well, get this, we have a singing God and we want to imitate him in his practice. I love C.S. Lewis's depiction of the creation of the world in his, his first book in the Narnia Chronicles, Magician's Nephew. There, creation happens as Aslan the lion opens his mouth and lets out the most beautiful tones. And as he does that, the mountains rumble out of the deep and plants grow up from the ground and trees burst forth from the earth. This picture is actually insanely biblical. Zephaniah 3 sets up this beautiful mirror. There the prophet says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. You see, our God is a singing God. And when we sing to him, We actually sing with him. Fourth, as my sister Charlotte Donlan reminded me recently in her writing, we sing together because we're part of a community. And when we embody that community through singing, we understand ourselves better as the church as we sing together. And it helps us to feel, actually, a little bit less alone in this world. Fifth, we sing because, like Mary... One of the ways that the people of God express their redemption through the ages is to sing. Have you been ransomed? Have you been redeemed? Have you been saved unto everlasting life through the blood of Jesus Christ? If so, seriously, how can you keep from singing? And now, some reasons why we don't sing. First, some of us have bought into the lie that a worship service is a concert. And what do we do at concerts? Well, we spectate. We ooh and ah over the music and the performance. God, help us if we ever think of the liturgy of the people of God as a concert. It's not. Instead, a worship service is a collective encounter with the presence of God through the word of God as it comes to us through a variety of means, through praying, through preaching, through reading, through the sacraments, and yes, through singing. So please don't spectate. Some of us say, I don't sing because I don't have a good voice, or I don't sing because I don't like to sing. Brothers and sisters, I don't see any footnotes in scripture. I don't see any caveats to the commands to sing. I don't see any subgroups of the good singers being those that God aims at when he commands them to sing unto the Lord. Not singing because you don't have a good voice is like a kid saying that I'm not going to draw that picture for my parents because I'm not Picasso. Every proud parent loves the simple joy of their children's drawing and delights to put it on the fridge. Why? Because they not only see the drawing, they see the heart. Well, God hears past the singing, folks. He sees and hears your heart. 
He doesn't expect you to sound like Katy Perry, Ed Sheeran, or auto-tuned Bieber, all right? Third, some of us might say with this logic, God is content to hear my heart and not my voice because he does look at the heart. Not singing for this reason is like thinking that God only wants part of you or the immaterial part of you. And he thinks that's most valuable. And that's actually a more Gnostic idea than a Christian idea. Christians are people of the incarnation. And when Jesus took on flesh, that means God had vocal cords. So yes, you should love the Lord your God with all of you, including your physicality, including your voice. All that said, I still think there might be some good reasons not to sing if you fall into one of these categories. Category number one. If you don't have a tongue, if for some reason, either by genetic defect or unfortunate accident, you find yourself tongueless, I think you've got a compelling reason not to sing. Category two, if you're dead, you know, if someone were to come in here on a gurney and flatlined heart rate, I'd probably give them a pass about this. But category three, and all humor aside, I actually think there's a good reason not to sing. It's the testimony of someone who says, I'm really suffering, and I could barely make it to church today. And if that's you, then I have one word for you. Praise God you made it to church today. Praise God. Sometimes that's all we can do. Drag our feet, collapse in a chair or in a pew, and let the gospel and the praises of his people wash over us, which reminds us that if we're able to sing, we sing for those folks Church should be the one guaranteed place where weary sufferers find rest. And if that's you, hear this good news from Hebrews 2. Jesus sings for you. In Hebrews 2, 11 to 12, Jesus says these words. I am not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. I will tell of God's name to you in the midst of the congregation. I will sing God's praise for the weak, weary, and downtrodden. Jesus sings for you. Praise God. Now, all of that singing stuff was just an overarching pastoral observation that we tend to miss when we read texts like this where the people of God are singing. But when we hear Mary singing, what do we hear? We hear a shocking revelation of an upside-down kingdom breaking into the kingdom of this world. And what do I mean by this? Well, think about it. How does power work in our society? How do kingdoms work in our day and age? I mean, all you need to do is turn on the radio or check out your news feeds about all these impeachment hearings and you will get a heavy dose of all the way that this right side up power works. Force, strength, might, who can flex bigger, who has more money, who has more military firepower or media pull, who can strike more fear into their opponents. But Mary's song sings about a new kind of kingdom. A different kind of kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. Did you catch, first of all, that Gabriel comes to marry to a woman in a patriarchal society like first century Palestine? This is a big deal. If God were going to do something powerful in the world through the world's concept of power, he certainly wouldn't do it through a woman of no consequence. But if God is in the upside-down business where weakness is strength, then God's up to something. Second, did you catch Mary's lyrics? Mary's a killer songwriter. 
The upside down kingdom is all over the place. She sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Humble servant Mary raised up upside down. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate upside down. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty upside down. You see, Mary is clued into something. Things work very differently in the kingdom of God. It's not like God's kingdom is a different app on the OS of your life. We don't just delete sin, hell, and death app and trade it in for the righteousness, heaven, and life app through Jesus. No, the kingdom of God is actually more like an entirely different OS, an entirely different phone. Its wiring is configured completely differently. Its technology is completely incompatible with the world's OS. Why? Because the kingdom of God, in it, weakness is strength. And you know why that's good news? Because the world's OS is totally exhausting. Totally exhausting. And have you ever felt like the world's OS has gotten us any further down the road of curing the fundamental human problem or condition? I sure don't. I'm with Mary. It's time for a total reboot. And I want to attempt this reboot through focusing on one word of Mary's. In fact, it's the first word of her song. In English, the first words, because of the way our grammar works, are my soul. But in Greek, as with Latin, the first word is a verb. Megalune. Magnify. Now, when we magnify something, what do we do? We make it bigger in appearance. Interestingly, when Luke uses this word throughout his entire two-book series of Luke and Acts, megalune only ever takes one object. God. The Lord. Nothing else and no one else is magnified in Luke's writing except God alone. Why is this important? Because your heart and my heart, dare I say it, runs on magnification. What do I mean by that? I mean that whatever is made big in the eyes of your heart, it is that magnification that will determine all your actions and all your choices. According to the Bible, you are an absolute slave to whatever your heart truly magnifies, as am I. This is how one of my mentors, Ashley Knoll, puts it. You've heard this before. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And this is how another infinitely more wise man, Jesus Christ, put it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I spend my time watching shows and looking at magazines and poring over images of fit, healthy, good-looking bodies... My heart begins to magnify those things. And all my decisions begin to serve that magnification. Why do I work out? I say it's because I'm healthy or I want to be healthy. But deep down, my soul magnifies the perfect body. And my spirit rejoices in fitness, my Savior. Oh, how we could chase down so many different magnifications today. It would be a good and painful spiritual exercise to take an inventory of your actions and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to expose to you what does my soul magnify? But here, I actually want to turn 
to the proper object of our magnification. I want to turn to the one that Mary would say, he is worth magnifying in your heart. And we have a question in front of us. What is it about God that God himself would have us magnify? What does God want us to dwell on, to meditate on, to blow up in the eyes of our hearts? Mary's song, in fact, points the way. You see, Mary rattles off several attributes of God throughout her song. Verse 49, he's mighty. That's worth magnifying. Verse 49, he's holy. That's worth magnifying. Verse 51, he is strong. That's worth magnifying. Verse 54, he is a helper. That's worth magnifying. But there's only one attribute that Mary sings twice. Do you know what it is? Mercy. Mercy. If you took a magnifying glass with a mercy meter on it and you read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you'd find that thing going off all the time. You see, God would have us know and magnify that he is the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Do you see it yet? One of the reasons why God wants his gospel to be preached all the time by you and by me This is one of those reasons. This is why he wants every worship service to expose our sin and our need and his salvation through Jesus Christ. Because in that word, God gets magnified as merciful. And God is magnified in the way that he wants to be magnified. Magnifying the mercy of God is what John the Baptist would do when he would say, pointing at Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase And I must decrease. Magnifying the mercy of God is what Paul said when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life in I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, here's one of the ironies of theology in the 20th century that wanted to make such a big deal about the incarnation of Jesus because they felt that there was too much negative emphasis on the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. They said that focus on the incarnation would restore a dignified sense of creation. They said that we've spent way too much time talking about creation's sinfulness and brokenness and we should instead spend our time talking about creation's dignity and beauty and health. And so they changed our liturgies. They changed our theology textbooks. And they changed our preaching. And the irony of this is that they undid the upside-down kingdom. They raised up what was supposed to remain down. And in doing so, they magnified humanity and not God. You see, the incarnation and the cross are inseparably linked. The incarnation can only be seen as mercy in light of the crucifixion. Crib and cross are a package deal. Or as some have said, The wood of the manger and the wood of the cross are cut from the same tree. When Jesus took on flesh, he didn't ultimately do so to dignify humanity. He did so to save an undignified humanity. He took on flesh so that we could not only hear about God's mercy, we could see it magnified chiefly, especially as he dies So it is that the Magnificat 
is a song that Mary not only sings at Jesus' birth, but she sings it at his death. She sings it not only in Bethlehem, she sings it at Golgotha. And we with her this Advent, this very moment, look with her at our bleeding, dying Savior, and we magnify his mercy as we sing, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, and he who is mighty has done great Things, the greatest of things for you, for you. The incarnate Son of God is mercy. Oh, praise Him with me, exalt Him with me, magnify, amplify, glorify Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.